What's going on everybody? I am Francesca Fiorentini and this is The Conversation. I am here as a guest host once again. I hope you're ready for it. We've got two very, very good discussions coming up. Hard hitting, just real whatever I can muster. Whatever we can muster, it's gonna be so good. Our first guest is Zachary Siegel. He is a contributor to The Appeal, which is a publication that focuses on mass incarceration. He's gonna to talk to us about good old Joe Biden. Zachary, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here. Oh, you're right here, hi. Welcome to TYT hey. Conversation, how are you? I'm good, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. So I wanted to talk to you about an article that you wrote last year about Joe Biden and specifically his legacy when it comes to the war on drugs. And a piece of legislation that's sort of, I guess, shorthandedly called the crack house law. Tell me about that. Okay, yeah, so I mean, it sounds bizarre that we're, that we're talking about crack houses in 2020. But basically, the crack house statute was part of a moral panic around drugs back in the late 80s and early 90s. And it basically stipulates that anyone who is owning or operating or managing a building that, that facilitates the use of drugs is uh, wherever drugs are going down in this building, that means whoever's you know on the lease or whoever's running this building, uh, they're liable to be to be criminally prosecuted. And so the the crack house statute it it you know foundationally it sounds racist. Like we think of crack houses as uh, being in in urban cities, and you know there's no crack houses in the suburbs. But people also smoke crack in the suburbs. But you know. Sure. No one who owns a house in the suburbs is being prosecuted for for doing it in their home. Right, right. And so, where does Joe Biden fit into this? This was, I understand, kind of his bill, and it was specifically prompted by a death at a rave. So, yeah, like it's really funny how this all happened, and not funny, but just how crack houses were sort of a panic in the late 80s and early 90s, and then going into the 90s and 2000s, that's when the next drug panic uh, raves began. And so there's something called the Rave Act, which is actually like an outgrowth of the crack house statute. It, it basically has the same rules mm -hmm. that if you're owning a concert venue and people are doing drugs in there, then you as the owner, you're also liable for whatever illegal activity is going down in that venue. And so the Rave Act is short for the not super subtle reducing Americans' vulnerability to ecstasy act. <laughs> and so yes, Joe Biden wow. wrote both the crack house statute and the Rave Act. And you know why we're talking about this now is really important because I cover public health with an eye toward drug policy. And as of late, some of the biggest public health threats are not from infectious disease, but from what economists have called deaths of despair. So overdose deaths, excessive drinking, mm -hmm. and tragically suicide are causing so many deaths that our nation's life expectancy has declined. Mm -hmm. And that our policy solutions have been zero tolerance and draconian and punitive. And this clearly doesn't work. We need a different approach, and these laws are interfering interfering with policy solutions to our uh, drug crisis now. 
Yeah, as I was reading your article, I thought that was interesting about the impact of those crack house laws and then this rave act, which was that uh, targeting not only the people who rent out spaces and maybe you know obviously with, uh, without a lot of their knowledge um, you know there is drug activity inside of those spaces but that um, people who sell things like water at events like raves could be held liable for or, or could be implicated under this law uh, that could be illegal which technically makes the rave a lot less safe. Exactly. Even yeah. Also, glow sticks are considered paraphernalia. It's True. it's really absurd. And so, for the appeal at the behest of my editor Ethan Brown, I looked into the case of Disco Donnie, who was a rave promoter. He threw like big parties in in New Orleans at the State Palace Theater. You know, raves we now call them them festivals and EDM. So he was sort of integral and foundational to this culture. And he was the first, the first rave promoter to ever be uh, criminally indicted for uh, throwing a rave. And he was prosecuted under the crack house statute. Wow. And when that case really fell apart and they couldn't make the case against him because he was a rave promoter, he was not a drug dealer. And there was a, a vast uh, conspiracy that he was making a lot of money, a lot of money off of selling drugs at the parties he was throwing. It just didn't hold water. Right. And so the case fell apart. Yeah. So what what is the impact of that legislation passed in '86? Right now, in 2020, what is happening, and how are, is this crack house law um, being implemented? Yeah. So as I was saying, there's a, a, a massive wave of, of overdose deaths right now, and and we're, why we're talking about this now is because of a recent court case in Philadelphia. So there's an organization called Safe House. They're a nonprofit and they were trying to open what's called a supervised consumption site. And basically what this means is that people can use drugs under medical supervision and avoid fatal overdoses. So these sound kind of radical and kind of counterintuitive, but really they're effective interventions grounded in harm reduction and public health. And they're prominent throughout Canada and also across Western Europe. And because of the crack house statute, because of these laws that Biden wrote that are on the books, uh, the Department of Justice sued Safe House to keep them from being able to open one of these facilities. Because if you own where drugs are being used, then you are technically in violation of the crack house statute. At least that was the argument that the US attorneys in Pennsylvania put forth. Mm -hmm. But it didn't hold up, and the judge ultimately decided that no, these uh, facilities do not facilitate the use of drugs. They prevent people from dying and give people critical health care. Right. Right, and that goes back to what you were saying about this logic of criminalizing um, drug use and also even criminalizing uh, the sale of drugs, which doesn't have necessarily the impact that I think most Americans would imagine that it does, right? And we've seen obviously the ways that it disproportionately uh, incarcerates people of color and all of that. But can you just sort of further that? Um, I know you talk a lot about these myths that we have in our minds about criminalizing, um, you know, the sale of drugs. Why is that? misguided. Yes, so I recently wrote another piece for the appeal about drug dealing and how we need to rethink the way 
that we uh, view people who sell drugs. So these uh, these laws and, and the rhetoric that, that gets them passed and used is often about how we're going after major traffickers and we're going after these, you know, uh, big international criminal organizations. But the research clearly shows that these laws are applied to people at the very bottom of mm. the drug trade. These are people who cannot get jobs in, in the mainstream economy. These are people who've never been given a chance and they're quite entrepreneurial and they do have skills and have trade and, and know how business works, but they can't get out of the underground economy. So they continue to sell drugs and, and that's who these laws are being applied to. And it's it's not El Chapo. Like, yes, we did capture El Chapo, but the drug uh, trade did not stop with his capture. People are still using drugs. And whether you're getting the kingpin or getting the people at the very bottom, the, the, the drug laws are not having their intended effect. They're just locking people up and people are still using. Right. I mean, we've all seen The Wire, and if you haven't seen The Wire, go back and rewatch The Wire to understand uh, how yes, right. uh, <laughs> how criminalizing drug sales works. Um, but back to Biden a little bit. What what is his response now? You know, twenty years after, or more than twenty years after this law has passed, is he trying to walk back his stance around um, the Rave Act or like the crack house statute and? You feel like he's trying to rewrite and maybe sort of own up to some of these bills that have had a negative impact when it comes to stopping drug use. Yeah, so at this point in the campaign, sadly, we're not talking about raves and, and crack houses. I, as a drug policy reporter, wish we were. But really, <laughs> the, at, the, at, the, at the very beginning of the campaign, you know, he sort of went on like a, a, a half apology tour. He said that the some of the crack laws that he did write were indeed harmful to the black community, and and he did own up for that. And I think you know since that the the Democratic Party has really championed criminal justice reform as of late, and even like the Koch brothers are trying to you know buy, buy some good some goodwill with criminal justice reform. That 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 the needle has moved so far on this recently that. I feel like someone like Biden, whose views might be a little outdated, really has no choice in this but to get on board. But when it comes to things like supervised injection sites, I haven't heard him make a peep about this. Whereas uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang, they have all explicitly come out in favor of supervised consumption sites. And I've asked the Biden campaign where they stand on this and, and really just haven't gotten a straight answer yet. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And it's also incredible that we've come this far in the last 20 years. I mean, we've seen just how much the war on drugs has failed, how much it's criminalized entire communities, and the work that you're doing is excellent. And you have pushed the needle, and you see that as you're saying in some of these front runner candidates who are seriously taking harm reduction as a, as a viable alternative to what we've been seeing. Thank you so much, Zachary Siegel. Let's, let's find your work on the appeal and follow you. Where can we follow you? Okay, thank you so much for having me. Okay, I'm I'm giving you a chance to shout out your Twitter, but uh, yes, follow you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's Zach all right stuff. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Zach. Take care. Take care. All right, and we'll be right back with another conversation with me, Francesca Fiorentini. 
welcome back to The Conversation. I am your host, Francesca Fiorentini, filling in. Thank you for letting me be here. Uh, thank you for watching. We have another conversation uh, with me. He is a former state rep of Florida, an attorney, and a founder of the organization People Over Profits. Please welcome Sean Shaw. Mr. Sean Shaw, hi, how are you? I'm great, how are you doing? Good, good. Um, so first of all, just tell me about your organization, People Over Profits. Sure, uh, you know, in Florida, I have a reputation of being a consumer advocate. I was the consumer advocate for insurance here in Florida. I'm a trial lawyer, I'm someone that believes that the power of corporations is way out of whack. <laughs> and so I started an organization to kind of talk about that and to bring some of those issues to light. And whether it's legislative battles, whether it is ballot initiatives, whether it's just bringing some of these issues to light, I thought that the conversation just needed a little meat on the other side. Uh, on behalf of the little person fighting against the big corporation. That's what I've kind of done all my career and just wanted to keep it going. That is super important. You are in Florida, of course, and you have a newish governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, who we know in 2018 narrowly defeated uh, Andrew Gillum, his uh, Democratic opponent. Uh, since he's been elected, Ron DeSantis has been busy uh, making Florida great again or <laughs> swampy, swampier, I'm sure, than it usually is. Uh, but specifically, I want to talk about his signature of Amendment 4, right? Which, which was that ballot measure that Florida voters um, passed that would give former felons the right to vote finally. Um, and which I don't think they've had for 150 years, it seems. And uh, he signed that amendment, but with a caveat. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, I ran for Attorney General here in 2018. I was the Democratic nominee, and one of the reasons I ran. It's because here in Florida, you know, the people pass ballot initiatives, and then the conservative legislature, when they don't like them, they kind of pass laws to thwart the ballot initiatives. And mm -hmm. this is another example. 67% of the people in Florida said that after you serve your time of sentence, that you should get your right to vote restored. The legislature then said, well, not really. Now you've got to pay all your court costs, all your fines. Anything associated with your sentence has to be fully vetted and laid out before you can vote. That is not the intention behind the amendment, but that is the law that the legislature passed mm -hmm. after that amendment was passed because you can guess the legislature's Republican, you can guess who they think is about to get their rights restored and how they're going to vote. And mm -hmm. so the legislature did that and the governor of course said all the right things that he believes in the people, but of course, his own administration, he put his lawyers to fight against Amendment 4. And it's just, you know, it's very disappointing. This is Florida, welcome to Florida. And, you know, a lot of people were trying to give Governor DeSantis credit for being somewhat of a, a, a you know, they he was doing better than they thought. But listen, we went from Rick Scott, who was right. about as bad as you could get, <laughs> till about slightly better Governor DeSantis. Okay, he's a little bit better than Rick Scott, that doesn't mean he's good. Means he's just better than Rick Scott. Yeah, but it's like one of your downgraded like, hurricanes. Yeah, he's yeah, he's not that much better. And yeah. the Amendment Four fiasco is an example of that. <laughs> yeah, well, explain that a little bit more in terms of, I mean, what are felons when they get out or, or those who've served their time, right? What kind of fees do they have? How much are they looking at? Well, those fees can be extensive. If you've got to pay restitution in a case, those fees can be thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you've been in jail, where do you have that money? Uh, where mm -hmm. are you going to get that money? Uh, and that money shouldn't prevent you from voting, right? Mm -hmm. You get out of jail, you've paid your dues, 
You've spent your time, you ought to be able to vote. Right. And uh, so a lot of us call those monies being required to be paid before you vote a poll tax. Right. Uh, and it, we know exactly what we're evoking. I know exactly what that term means in the context of race in this country. And it's exactly the term we meant to use. That is exactly what we believe it is. So if you're a felon, there's some, uh, there's some other areas around the state where certain state attorneys have worked with judges so that there's a way that judges can waive some of these fees, can turn some of them into community service and do some of these things. But on a statewide level, there's still a lot of questions as to how this is going to work and there shouldn't be. The right. people of Florida, 67% passed a constitutional amendment saying that when you serve your time, you're a returning citizen, you ought to automatically get your rights restored. Uh, and this fiasco is not what the people intended, but the legislature does it a lot when right. they don't like stuff. Right, and by poll tax, you are invoking Jim mm -hmm. Crow laws. I know exactly what I'm invoking and I mean to do it and I said what I said. Yeah, yeah, no, and obviously it disproportionately and primarily affects black Floridians. And um, uh, I mean, obviously like, it makes you feel like, uh, you know, you're not wanted. It's hard enough right now to get people to come out to the polls, right? But then imagining someone who's trying to get on their feet after serving time, trying to find work, trying to overcome all the stigma that is someone who's been formerly incarcerated. You know, voting is not necessarily enough for everyone, but not on the top of your list, right? Um, right. So I mean, it's just I'm, incredible. You know, I've knocked on some of these doors, and when you knock on the door of a returning citizen, and you ask them, you know, I'd like to have your vote. I'm Sean Shaw. I'm running for X, Y, Z. And those people look into your eyes and say, I can't vote. I am a convicted felon. Mm -hmm. uh, that person is crestfallen. Yeah. And for them, for us to take them through the emotional highs and lows now of all the work, there were tons of blood, sweat, and tears that went into passing this amendment. Uh, and to pass it and to have the jubilation associated with it, to see the legislature then take it away, and to see now the chaos involved is just indicative of Florida. Welcome to Florida. <laughs> I mean, it's. I just wanna say it is interesting to see that one of the most direct forms of democracy, this ballot measure, it's not just Florida. I mean, I've been in Utah, they overturned their Medicaid expansion there, but the state legislature did it because the state legislature is a Republican. It's incredible that it actually ends up being way more complicated to overturn and amend and change this measure that is very, very explicit and clear. Uh, and that they go through hoops because you know they're trying to prevent people of color from getting to the polls, primarily, of course, um, and exactly. maybe Democratic voters, right? Um, but there's another thing that he proposed. We're talking about your governor, Ron DeSantis, right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm with Sean Shaw. Um, he's a former uh, Florida State rep, and. So DeSantis is proposing a huge salary increase for Florida teachers, which on its face seems incredibly progressive. Like it seems something a Democrat would be in favor of. Um, can you tell me more about that and sort of what your read on this is? Well, listen, I actually served in the legislature, so I can tell you, you never believe what people say behind podiums. You believe. Uh, and what the bill actually says. And I haven't read it back to front, but I'm gonna be very interested in a year or two from now as to how much base salary increase this bill is. Right. Because I've heard a few different uh, phrases about the school board will have some abilities to implement these raises, that the raises are gonna go to base salary, that the raises are gonna not go to veteran teachers, they're only going to new teachers. Uh, so, you know, again, 
DeSantis is good at one thing, saying the right thing on headlines. You know, he mm -hmm. believes in the environment and he believes in public education and he believes in Amendment 4. But when you look behind the curtain, actually he doesn't believe in the, in the implementation of Amendment 4. Actually, DeSantis is continuing the dismantling of the public school system here in Florida by the expansion of vouchers and charters and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so when you look behind the nice podium speeches, you see that they're continuing to do in Florida what they've always done, which is, uh, tried to turn our public school system into a for-profit institution uh, to, you know, have our environment not be what it ought to be, yeah. uh, and to just have us be the least taxed state in the country, which means that we don't have money to do anything else, and that's what we're continuing to do. And I was in the legislature, so I know what speeches versus bills are, particularly in that in that legislative body. Absolutely, I think it's really interesting that um, it's seen as almost this handout. Like, okay, we're gonna raise base teacher salary, uh, and then I don't want to hear anything more from you. Right. Um, it seems like he's not working with uh, teachers unions who are upset about this. Well, I mean, we have bills being proposed now to do away with teacher unions, to do away with unions, to make it such that you have to pay your dues every year, that they can't be automatically taken out of your uh, your paycheck. You know, they're doing everything they can to attack unions because. You know, the only thing really standing up for public education is the state or teachers union. So the legislature is diabolical and very good, unfortunately, at going after what they what they don't like. And you know, back to our other example, there's now proposals in the legislature to make it harder for the citizens to pass constitutional amendments. Right. So that in the future we won't even have this amendment four problem because now it'll be damn near impossible for anyone to get a ballot onto a ballot initiative. Uh, pass. So the legislature is doing what the legislature does. It's so bald face. It's it's ridiculous. All right. Well, switching gears a little bit. I know you have sort of a surprising person candidate that you endorse in 2020. Um, you know, it seems like you're for a lot of progressive causes, and yet you endorse Mayor Pete Buttigieg for president, uh, and he doesn't necessarily identify as a progressive. Uh, why why are you supporting Mayor Pete? I will tell you. Look, I, I'm gonna be very candid with you. The term progressive changes, <laughs> at, no, depends on who you're talking to and what you're talking about. Sure, Let me sure, just, sure. But I was drawn to Mayor Pete. I saw him on the Fox Town Hall. I had no connection to him and he spoke to me. I, sometimes someone just speaks to you. And I liked the optimism, I liked the pragmatism, and I just liked what I heard and I got to know him and I got to know his campaign better and I liked it. I liked. Mm -hmm. Candidly, the way he made me feel about the country in a positive way. Uh, when you juxtapose how negative I feel about the country now as I watch the impeachment play behind this interview. Uh, Trump makes me feel terrible, Pete makes me feel good about the future. He was the one that made me feel best and I just kind of went with my heart. I went with the person that made me feel the best. I'm going to Iowa Friday, I'm gonna be there through Tuesday through the caucuses and put in some work. This thin Florida blood is gonna go up there so that'll tell you <laughs> how much I care about it. But you know, we we have a lot of good candidates, and we our candidates have a lot of different strengths. And I just hope that when the time comes, we all understand who the enemy is, and it's the person that has been impeached in the White House. It's not other Democrats. Absolutely. Well, we can definitely agree on that. Thank you, Sean Shaw, and please check out your work for folks to check out your work, People Over Profits. And thanks so much. No, good luck in Iowa. Thank you. It'll be cold, but thank you. Indeed. All right, take care. Thank you. And that does it for the conversation with Francesca Fiorentini. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'm done. We're done. Bye bye. See you next time.